We are talking about critical race theory on This Week in the CLE today. We have a big story on Cleveland.com coming in the Plain Dealer. We're going to discuss it. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues Jane Cahoon and Layla Atassi. Laura Johnston will be back in the chair on Monday, so we'll have a full house for one more full week. <laughs> it's Friday. It's beautiful weather. You guys excited about the weekend? Yeah, very well, much so. You know, we've had a not miserably humid week, but it's supposed to be nice today and tomorrow, at least, maybe not Sunday. So I'm, I'll hasten you on your way to it. Right. Is it possible <laughs> the Ohio Republican Party will not endorse an incumbent governor, Mike DeWine, in his reelection bid? And has that ever happened before? Jane Coon, I got a theory that when when a group gets into a supermajority, they just become dysfunctional. There have to be factions. And if they can't fight with the other side because it's so weak, they fight with each other. We've seen it in Congress and we're seeing it in this state. What is wrong with these people? Yeah, you know, Andrew Tobias really gave us an inside look uh, at some of this internal strife going on right now in the Ohio Republican Party. And, you know, I call it inside baseball, but it's but it was really interesting. So anyway, the uh, the party now is headed by a guy named Bob Paduchik, who's both a DeWine supporter and a Donald Trump ally. But uh, as we know, DeWine has made some of the far right people in his party angry because of his coronavirus restrictions he imposed and because, you know, he had the audacity to actually acknowledge that Joe Biden won the 2020 presidential election. Uh, so that alienated some people. So there's this, I'd call it like a vocal block of dissenters in the party. And they are not happy that the party gave DeWine's campaign a lot of money this year, like hundreds of thousands of dollars in both cash and in-kind contributions. The The state party was DeWine's largest single contributor this year. So anyway, um, th this group, you know, not only is upset about that, but they also want to block the party from in endorsing DeWine or any other candidate in, in next year's primary. So this um, small group of, you know, they're on the state GOP Central Committee. They they even held a protest this week outside the governor's mansion. It was the day when the DeWine campaign was supposed to have hosted a, a, a picnic lunch there for state Central Committee members, but it got canceled, I guess, because of weather. But they, they still were out there protesting and had a news conference and everything covered by conservative media. But um, I, in response to this dissent, Paduchik sent a letter uh, recently, about a week ago, to co uh, committee members that, you know, it's traditional for the state party to support incumbent officials during a non-election year, which this is, and um, it doesn't equate to an endorsement. You know, the party also gave money to Dave Yost, the attorney general, and and to um, Frank LaRose, uh, Keith Faber, and Robert Sprague, the other statewide officials, uh, Republicans. So, um, you know, as you said, it's not unusual to have these party fights, but, um, you know, usually pits the leaders against, you know, a vocal minority, you know, who are a bit unruly, as Andrew put it in his story. But this time, you know, we have a bit more of a Republican backlash against DeWine, as as we mentioned. I mean, let's not forget that Trump practically invited candidates to challenge him in the primary after after he made that acknowledgement about Biden winning the election. And we have two other Republicans already challenging him 
him, including uh, former Congressman Jim Renacci and, and a uh, far-right cattle rancher named Joe Blystone, who's got kind of a little devoted social media following. But um, so I don't know. The the party he's, establishment does seem to be in DeWine's corner. So so we'll have to see what happens. You know, we've seen a lot of examples over the past year where a, a tiny fraction of vocal people get outsized the tension that that most people are not loons. Uh, is this one of those cases where there's a there's a small group of people that are just screaming so loud that they're getting undue attention? Is this a, is this an actual threat or when the committee votes on endorsements, will they step forward and, and endorse the very strong incumbent Republican? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they they seem to tell Andrew that things would be close if they had a vote. I mean, these are <laughs> these are people who are on the Central Committee, you know, so. I don't know. I think don't about, know. Think about what they're doing, though. I mean, they have a, in Mike DeWine, at least as of now, a guy who's popular really on both sides. He's a guy that would draw Democratic votes because of many people still think what he did, at least in the beginning of the pandemic, was a valiant effort to keep people safe. We'll be talking later about whether that's falling apart. But but it, you don't often have an incumbent governor that, that has had the approval ratings of Mike DeWine. And... <laughs> They're trying to knock him out to put some far right loon in, which would possibly give that that governorship to the Democrats. I mean, are, are they really that foolish that they would give up the power out of this this silly dogma? I, I'm, I, it's, I don't it's a, know. Andrew seems to think that DeWine really doesn't need that endorsement. But um, and, you know, uh, you asked in your initial question about like whether this has ever happened before. I was just looking back to like the last three Republican governors, John Kasich, Bob Taft and George Voinovich, and all of them were unopposed in their primaries for reelection. So so this seems kind of unusual, you know. Yeah, although we'll see if he really does face a primary challenge because the there's no traction for Jim Renace. He's getting no attention. I mean, he keeps sending out, you know, kind of Josh Mandeli news releases making ridiculous statements, but no one's paying attention. So maybe he just kind of withers away. You don't want to have that primary challenge and make a joke of yourself. And he's already got that kind of thing going in the Senate race. So we'll see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why are throngs of parents showing up at school board meetings to yell at board members about critical race theory? Leila Tassi, we sent reporter Eric Heisig out not to explain critical race theory because actually most of these people that are screaming don't even know what it is. It's more why have they become so impassioned that they're showing up, giving up evenings to go to their school boards and scream at them. Right, right. This subject has consumed well, it's consumed my community, which is the one of the ones that Eric focused on for this piece. So, so just by way of definition, critical race theory is a series of concepts that focus on whether the government and justice system provide fair outcomes regardless of ethnicity. And the theory is kind of, it's based on the idea that racism is baked into institutions instead of just a result of individual acts. And it's, it's important to say that while it's taught in colleges, it's not being taught in elementary, middle, and high schools, which is a very widespread misconception. And so there's this growing number of parents who think 
that critical race theory is seeping into their kids' classrooms because they see district plans that are designed to ensure that students get the same opportunities to succeed. And those plans include the buzzwords of equity, justice, and inclusion, which these parents see as dog whistles signaling that their kids are being brainwashed into thinking that they're part of a racist society simply because they're white. So they're showing up to school board meetings in these huge numbers in these largely affluent white communities to, to make these arguments and, and frankly, to out themselves as racists. <laughs> but thankfully, they're being met there by growing numbers of parents who are praising the districts for their efforts toward equity and standing up for other divisive yet common sense policies the district has set, such as wearing masks during a pandemic. But unfortunately, now we have anti-CRT people running for school boards. Eric did a very deep dive into what's driving this movement in in two specific towns, Chagrin Falls being one, and Bay Village, which is where I happen to live, he found a lot of it is spurred by information that's propagated by this conservative group called Protect Ohio Children. Parents who have been indoctrinated by them say things like, you know, kids shouldn't be made to feel guilty or privileged or racist because they were born white and children of color you know, shouldn't be made to feel disenfranchised because they were born with a certain skin color. That's so divisive and offensive. We're all equal. And honestly, that denial is the most insidious form of racism, in my opinion. So the teachers and school board members say that their curriculum doesn't include CRT at all. In fact, it changes to, and to curriculum in public schools aren't easy. There are so many layers of bureaucracy that have to approve them. And yet these school boards are put in this position where they're defending against these claims of something that isn't even happening in their schools. And it's to an obnoxious level in these communities. They, they get up by the dozens and they read these talking points into the record. Protect and Ohio. they don't listen. They no. don't listen. The school boards keep telling them, yes. You're, we don't do it. It's not here. And it couldn't be here without a significant effort and, and discussion. But they're not listening. They're just screaming at the school board members. And look, we should... A lot of people run for office with an idea of moving up the chain. Remember when Josh Mandel ran for South Euclid Council and, you know, he wasn't going to be there for five minutes before he was seeking higher office. Most people who run for school board, that's not their, their goal. They really are doing it out of the goodness of their hearts because they care about education. Most of them never run for anything else. They, they put in the work so that the kids get what they need for education. So these are kind souls doing the public duty. And now they're, they're faced with what, what had been very quiet meetings, often with nobody present, angry mobs coming in to yell at them for something they're not doing. That's right. And and it's terrifying to think that more and more of them are, throw, you know, that they've thrown their hat in the ring to, to be on the school board. And, you know, someone had told me this anecdote from an, uh, a school board meeting uh, earlier in the year where the guy who's kind of behind Protect Ohio Children had shown up by invitation from some of these parents and he wanted to speak. And the school board said he's not a resident. He's not permitted to. That's against our rules. And people were screaming, let him speak, let him speak. <laughs> and it just went off the rails. And their website encourages this kind of, they call it the tsunami effect, where you just yeah. bombard the meeting with at least 30 speakers delivering the same statement. And really, I mean, this all boils down to a flat out denial that institutional racism exists. And let's be honest, that's because these people believe the concepts of equity and inclusion threaten their own children's position at the top of the social hierarchy. And guess what? I mean, that 
concerted, organized effort to find ways to preserve the privilege of whiteness is structural structural racism. I, 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 I wonder if there's something bigger going on, though. I mean, the country got very divided because of Donald Trump and the people who supported Trump felt like they were in a club and they were condescending and looked down on everybody else like they were somehow smarter. With Trump leaving and national media have shown this, this was a completely fabricated issue. This was nobody ever heard of critical race theory before this year, really. And then some people thought, well, we got to keep people polarized. Let's create this issue. And so now these people who are showing up at board meetings feel like they're part of that club and they're looking down on others who don't understand their cause. I, I, I wonder if it's really not as much about the issue as, as about remaining part of that that superior club or something. The other thing is, we, what is going on in Chagrin Falls? You had the column last year about the, the way they reacted to a Black Lives Matter protest. It was really kind of awful. Um, now they, they're in the middle of this with residents showing up to scream about this. Yesterday when school opened, somebody was flying a plane over the school that was anti-mask. No, so here are these little children yeah. going to their first day of school, one of the biggest days of their lives, right? And they look up in the sky and they see somebody flying that anti-mask nonsense. What is wrong with Chagrin Falls? You would think that the leaders there would kind of call people together to have a reckoning. I, I you know, it's... It's, it's my sincerest hope that the parents who are inclined to push back against this faction of our community are, are using this all as a teachable moment for their own kids. So that even though, you know, in, in the case of critical race theory, if, if these important discussions about racism and equity haven't, haven't been taught as part of our school curriculum, they're at least happening now in our homes. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I mean... You'd... You'd hope. It's just, um, it's sad. And check out Eric's story. It's on cleveland.com. It's going to publish in The Plain Dealer on Sunday. It really gets into what's driving these folks. And what's driving these folks is is not exactly what what it appears on the, the surface. There's also a City Club speech today about critical race theory that could be interesting. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the good news for the Ashtabula River, long a dangerous stew of toxic chemicals? Jane Cahoon, we don't often get good environmental news around here. This is a good one. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure this river ever caught fire, but it, it definitely was polluted. But after years of, of various cleanup efforts, the EPA said Thursday that the Ashtabula River is no longer considered one of the most environmentally degraded areas in the Great Lakes region. So it's been taken off this list of areas of concern that was established by the United States and Canada in the 1980s. So there, there, as I said, have been a variety of cleanup measures between 2006 and 2013. This included the removal of contaminated sediment from the bottom of the river and the installation of 2,500 feet of fish habitat. So, um, you know, they, they dredged like 497,000 cubic yards of sediment, sediment, excuse me, containing 14,000 pounds of PCBs and other con contaminants. So, um, so this was, yeah, a big effort. It was one of 43 sites on the Great Lakes that had been tagged as an area of concern. And it's the uh, sixth of the U.S. sites to be delisted and the first one in Ohio. Uh, we still do have the Cuyahoga River, the Black River in Lorain County, and the Maumee River in Toledo still on this list. That's a staggering amount of PCBs that were in that yeah. river. I mean, yeah, it's, for sure. I mean, it sounds like that was just 
gross for a long time. Yeah, but it's good yeah. news. We're cleaning it up. It'd be nice if we could clean up the Cuyahoga. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is a federal judge looking likely to intervene in a simmering dispute between the Cleveland city government and a civilian board created as part of the city's police consent decree? Leila Tassi, the city government just does not want civilians looking into their business. It's part of what's going on the ballot this November. And and here it is, a board could, created by consent that that the city is just not cooperating with. You know, it struck me while I was reading this that District Judge Solomon Oliver probably feels like he drew the short straw by having (laughs) to oversee this consent decree, which I think will go on in perpetuity. So the Community Police Commission is that panel that represents the public and it makes recommendations to Police Chief Calvin Williams on policies and practices. They requested disciplinary letters on officers dating back to 2014, and they say that the city has refused to produce them. This is part of just ongoing hostility between the city and this panel. Let me interrupt you, though. We have records requests going back to 2014. That, I know. Is this that, really about the police commission or is this just Mayor Frank Jackson's records <laughs> policy? <laughs> that struck me, too. I kind of was like, well, welcome to the party panel. <laughs> <laughs> this is You're in our boat. So Oliver said in a court filing that he could hold a hearing, but he's likely just going to issue an order spelling out how the city and the commission can settle their differences. This all came became public last month when when an attorney for the Justice Department accused the city of delaying for years the release of these records, uh, despite multiple meetings between them. She And she said that the city was standing in the way of the panel fulfilling its mandate. She urged Oliver to order the city to produce those records within 14 days. A city attorney argued that the language of the consent decree prohibits the city from releasing information that's law enforcement sensitive, legally restricted, or related to personnel matters. And he argued that they're asking for too much, that it's a burdensome amount of paperwork that has nothing to do with what the panel is supposed to be focused on. That attorney has asked Oliver for a conference with all the attorneys to hash it out. But Hassan Aiden, the the consent decree monitor, recommended that Oliver submit an order that would offer a timeline for the city to produce the information and settle these disputes. That appears to be the route that he's going to take. So uh, onward with this endless consent decree. Well, Are we going to get anywhere with constitutional policing? Is this actually panning out? I, I well, know. if, but you know, it's one of the reasons I think people have put on the ballot some yeah. a, a police commission that would actually be in charge or have oversight over police discipline because they're disgusted with how it's going. It's fascinating how many people outside of Cleveland I hear from that say this is a terrible, terrible idea. Uh, that I don't think understand the way people in Cleveland feel about the way the police situation has developed. Most of the people running for mayor against that ballot commission, too, not just in Bibb, but the rest. And I it just take the temperature of the people of Cleveland. They do not have a satisfaction with how things are going with the police department. And this is an example. Here's a commission that the city agreed to that they're thwarting. Interesting stuff. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How vulnerable is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine to the criticism of Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley about his refusal to order everyone in schools to wear masks? Whaley is challenging DeWine in the governor's race and criticizes him often, 
But does she have him in a tight spot here? Jane Coon, I think the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> well, we, we talked about this the other day when DeWine had that special coronavirus briefing to practically beg local school districts to in, institute mask mandates and saying that vaccinations and masks were the clear way to protect kids and allow them to have a school year. But he won't issue a statewide mandate, even though he does have the power to do so, at, at least temporarily. So yes, as you said, that does leave him vulnerable to the criticism of someone like Nan Whaley, the mayor of Dayton, where the school district is requiring them there. But uh, as you said, she hopes to be the Democratic nominee challenging DeWine next year. And she's she's calling him out on this, citing the CDC guidance that recommends universal masking indoors for all K-12 students, teachers, staff, and visitors, regardless of their vaccination status. So she called on DeWine to, to issue an order. And, you know, this happens as we've been seeing a really scary situation around the country where where the people hospitalized for the virus are getting younger and we're seeing kids in the hospital and even in intensive care. It's, it's really scary, as I said. Um, however, we're also still seeing a contingent of vocal anti-mask parents who are loudly protesting and DeWine's opponents within his, his own party are coming at him from the other side, right. you know, he, uh, even though he hasn't even issued a mandate. It was interesting. I saw a fundraising pitch the other day from Congressman Jim Renacci, who's running against DeWine in next year's primary. And the subject line was, I'm fighting to end mask mandates. And he attacks DeWine for not standing up to the school districts that have imposed the mandates. So as I said, he's basically being criticized for being weak by both, you know, his opponents on the left and the right for not standing up to whoever, you know. Okay. So a couple things. One, we should point out you and I had a, a, a decent discussion yesterday on whether to write about this because we generally don't just take campaign propaganda and do stories about it and ultimately <laughs> fell on the side of th this mask thing is a real issue. And, and what Nan Whaley is saying as a candidate, she's also saying as a mayor where children are in danger. And so we went with it. I, 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 I also wonder, you know, Nan, one of the things she said is he's he's playing politics with this decision because he fears a campaign challenge. And we were talking before the podcast, you know, the Mike DeWine that we saw last spring, spring of 2020, did all the things he needed to do the criticism be damned because he wanted to save Ohioans and, and that guy's kind of disappeared. And you, we were wondering why, you know, what, what if he did what his conscience told him to do and he lost his reelection bid? He's had an incredible career and he could walk away with his head held high because he knows he did everything he could to protect Ohioans. I don't quite understand why he would make decisions in desperation to keep the job because he doesn't need to keep the job to have a legacy. His legacy is already there. And I'm, yeah. I, I, I think Nanwelli has a point. He's playing politics with a decision here instead of doing the right thing. Well, I should say that his spokesman, Dan Tierney, would, would say there's a difference between now and the spring of 2020 when, when DeWine did impose a mask mandate. He, he said now there are multiple pathways to keep kids in the classroom, including vaccinating the ones who are 12 and older, and that, you know, people are able to protect themselves 
uh, and, yeah, and there's me, more me... ability for personal responsibility. So but I'm just telling you what their yeah, I know, take but, on it is. But that's poppycock, right? Because we all know <laughs> a whole lot of people are not vaccinated. So if your kid is going to a school where it's not vaccinated, where people aren't vaccinated, your kid's in danger. The other thing is, yeah, I agree. Things are very different than when he started. We have a much more dangerous version of this virus out here now, much more and contagious. And one that's really affecting children, right. much, much more so than it did before. So I would argue that there's a much greater urgency now to protect the children than a year and a half ago when it really wasn't affecting them. So Dan Tierney's explanations really hold no water. I'm really kind of shocked that <laughs> Layla Atassi has not spoken up during this conversation. I'm just yeah, like, Layla, you know, because I think my head is going to blow off my shoulders <laughs> in a second. I mean, not a single child in my kids' schools are vaccinated. They're all under 12. And we are actually planning a story on this now, but we are learning more and more that the the virus is spread through aerosol, not through droplets, which means that, you know, they, for a long time they were saying you have... Um, you know, uh, a 15 minute, you know, you, 15 minute increments, you can be around each other that that's what constitutes, you know, less than that, you're safe. And, uh, you know, the six foot rule, all these things don't mean anything anymore, because we know more about how contagious this virus is, and, and how it's spread. So you're putting these kids closer together, you're making masks optional, you're putting them in cafeterias where they take off their masks and eat around one another. And none of them are vaccinated. No, we're not in a better position than we were in 2020. And how dare you? <laughs> so... All right. Okay. We, I wanted to hear from Leila Tazi. I knew she had a perspective. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the new name of the Cleveland Recreation Center, previously named for Ken Johnson, the former city councilman recently convicted of stealing from the taxpayers for years? Tassi, I always think it's bizarre to name something for someone who's alive because there's a chance they're going to be convicted of being a crook. That's exactly <laughs> That's exactly. You know, it's funny. Is, oh, anyway, I'll get to that. But so the city, the city had taken down the signage from the building a couple weeks ago, which as a side note, I think you'll find this amusing. We had heard this funny story that in the days after Johnson's conviction, there were a few of the candidates for city council that had wanted to stage a press conference outside the rec center to demand the name be removed, but the city had already done it, so they were mad. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? Anyways, city council just introduced this legislation a couple days ago to rename the center the Woodland Recreation Center because you know, it's on Woodland Avenue <laughs> at East 93rd Street. It still has to be vetted in committees and it, and it could be approved as soon as the September 20th council meeting. Uh, you know, the Woodland Recreation Center, that's kind of a boring name. But, you know, sometimes boring is best. I, I remember back when I covered the city being a little shocked, as you said, that they would name a building after an incumbent public official. That always struck me as a little risky because public officials sometimes end up, you know, Convicted of stealing from a government program, for example. <laughs> it's just a bad look if you've got to take that name down, as was the case here. And it reminds me of all those stupid honorary street designations the city council gives out. And there are a yeah. bajillion of them. And then there are ones that go bad, like Gerald McFall Road, which was named right. after the disgraced former sheriff. They had to take that sign down. And then remember, they tried to name a portion of Cedar Avenue after Don King, 
who has Cleveland ties, and they were they were going to call it Don King Way until we pointed out that that stretch of Cedar Road was actually exactly where Don King stomped Amanda to death in the 1960s over a $600 gambling debt. So, you know what? I guess Woodland Recreation Center is just fine. <laughs> Well, and I imagine that's what it was called before they renamed it for Ken Johnson. It, it's just bizarre that they name it for a living, sitting councilman. You would think they'd come to their senses. Uh, we'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Let's do one more. It's a question that's been sitting around for a week that we haven't gotten to. How much of a financial impact did the NFL draft have in Cleveland? And how did that compare to the predictions before COVID changed everything? Jane Cahoon, we can wrap this up quickly. And, you know, let's add that we're always a little bit skeptical of these claims. <laughs> That's what I was going to start out saying. I'm skeptical, but I don't want to rain on anyone's parade because there's no denying that this draft gave our city a boost. They're estimating that this draft pumped $42 million into Cleveland's economy and positioned the city to land more big events like this. Um, just a quick reminder, the event was from April 29th to May 1st. It drew about 160,000 people to Cleveland and was seen by more than 40 million television viewers. And uh, that's according to the Greater Cleveland Sports Commission. And this was one of the first events that actually allowed spectators to, to gather safely, but it did really limit the capacity. So, you know, you want to know about, for comparison, the 2019 draft in Nashville before the pandemic drew like 600,000 fans and generated a record 224 million. Um, but anyway, so um, still this was, as I said, a big deal for Cleveland where the hospitality and entertainment industry downtown has really taken a hit. And um, and we appear to be on a roll because we got more events you know, coming up in the coming year like uh, Women's Tennis Association Tournament, you know, U.S. Masters Swimming Long Course National Championships, uh, 2022 yeah, NBA All-Star Game, you know, the list goes well, on. anybody go, given what's going on with COVID? We'll have to see. Mm, yeah. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Every week, every day, I thank people who listen to this podcast, and today I'm thanking you again. We hit an audience record yesterday. More and more people are listening. Share the word. Let people know that you enjoy this. We appreciate all of your support. Next week, the trial of Ken Mills begins. The county official charged with all sorts of dastardly deeds. We're expecting a lot of revelations to come out of that. We'll be talking about it all week, I believe. Corey Schaefer will be covering it. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Layla. And thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast.